Well, good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Glad you are here. As was mentioned earlier, if you are one of our guests, we're glad you're here, and we hope you will stick around after services and let us get to know you just a little bit better. Turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We are beginning a new series on the book of Philippians, and I have entitled this series of sermons, Empowered to Rejoice. And essentially what that means is God is the one who empowers us to know His joy. He gives us His joy. And Philippians is a book that accentuates and highlights the joy that God gives us and that we can rejoice. And I do believe that this is a timely message. I remember uh, last year... I don't know that it was necessarily around this time, maybe a little earlier in the year when everything was kind of locked down. A lot of people that, I was, uh, that I'm familiar with, that I know through some of the Facebook groups that I'm in and social media and things like that, were preaching through the prison epistles of Paul, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon as well, because it seemed appropriate at the time. We were all locked down, and so why not see what Paul was talking about when he was under lockdown, as it were. Uh, we didn't go that route, but I do believe that the, the message of Philippians, written from a Roman prison, concerning the Apostle Paul and how he even could have joy in that situation, I believe that is a timely message for us right now, given everything that's going on in our world. So that's kind of the genesis of this series of lessons. And to begin... We're going to talk about joy. Where do we get joy? What is it in the first place? Uh, and, and how is it distinct even from happiness? So that's where we're going this morning. Let's begin here in Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let us pray. Father, we want to know the joy of the Lord. We want to see it clearly, what it means, what it means for us even today. So through your word, instruct us concerning the joy that you have for us, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. I first ran across what is called the Happy Planet Index back in 2012, and I believe that was one of the first times they had published the Happy Planet Index. I looked it up just the other day in preparation for this lesson. The last time, at least that I could find, when they published data on the Happy Planet Index was in 2016. And what they measure is the happiest planet, uh, the happiest country on the planet. And the happiest country on the planet in 2016, according to the Happy Planet Index, was Costa Rica. It was the same country, by the way, that when it was published in 2012. Costa Rica was the happiest country on the planet then. To discover this data, this metric for happiest country on the planet, these researchers would multiply 
life expectancy by something called experienced well-being, and then they would divide that by the ecological footprint, again, whatever that is. So life expectancy times experienced well-being, all that divided by ecological footprint, and that got you your quotient for the Happy Planet Index. There you go. What was fascinating is you go through the list, and in the top ten, most of the, the happiest planets, the happiest countries on the planet are in Central and South America. Uh, Vietnam is one of the exceptions. Vietnam is the fifth happiest country on the planet. Uh, so, very interesting thing. Now, that got me down a rabbit hole, and there's now what is called the World Happiness Report. The World Happiness Report is compiled by Sustainable Development Solutions Network in association with our friends over at the Gallup. This is the Gallup World Poll. And also, Unilever's largest ice cream brand, Walls. <laughs> because, you know, ice cream makes people happy, I guess. And so they wanted in on this happiness report as well. And ever since 2012, they've been publishing the World Happiness Report. You can go back and look at past happiness reports for the last almost decade. They've actually worked it out, so it's not just the country that they focus on, but the happiest cities on the planet. And if I'm reading the data right, Helsinki, Finland is, well, it's one of the highest uh, scores for at least uh, what is called subjective well-being. And, and that's what this whole thing is about. I hope you understand that when it comes to how these researchers are determining happiness, it is very subjective. Because how do you objectively measure happiness? Now, that, that doesn't stop people from producing all kinds of literature concerning happiness and how to pursue happiness. Perhaps one of the best-known propagators of happiness and God wanting you happy is, as he styled, America's pastor, Joel Osteen. I surveyed his book, Your Best Life Now. He has seven principles concerning how you can have your best life now and how God wants you to be happy. You need to enlarge your vision. You need to develop a healthy self-image. You need to discover the power of thoughts and words, your thoughts and words. You need to let go of the past. You need to find strength through adversity. You need to live to give, and you need to choose to be happy. That's Mr. Osteen's list. Other authors have gotten in on this. There's the Four Dummies series. You know the, the series of books, Four Dummies, right? There's Happiness for Dummies, I found. And according to Happiness for Dummies, the author offers four ingredients. One, you need a feeling of safety. You need a sense of satisfaction. You need a sense of perspective. And you need quietude. And then there's some other ingredients that they provide. You need satisfaction, pleasure, gratitude, serenity, and well-being. Happiness for dummies. There you go. John Chafee has gotten in on this as well. He has a book called The Thinker's Way, and he offers eight steps in pursuing happiness in your life. Think critically. Live creatively. Choose freely. Solve problems effectively. Communicate effectively. Analyze complex issues. Develop enlightened values. And think through relationships. Finally, M. Scott Peck 
He's written a, a number of books, and he's written The Road Less Traveled. Thank you. Uh, no, we will we'll do this later, Steve, all right? Why don't you have a seat, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, all right? Thank you. M. Scott Peck, he's, he's written a few books, The Road Less Traveled. You may be familiar with that. His thesis in that was, Life is Difficult. Years later, he wrote Further Along the Road Less Traveled, and his thesis for that book was, Life is Complex. And then his third book, The Road Less Traveled and Beyond, he, he argues that failure to think is the problem. And now, I hope you notice there's a, a pattern developing concerning your thoughts and your thinking. Now, this is what we've known all along. Scripture tells us that the battlefield is the mind. And how we think has a lot to do with the way that we live. But here's the question. Is happiness, is happiness the very thing that we're even supposed to be pursuing in the first place? Is happiness what we are to be pursuing? When you look at the word happiness, the root of the word happy is actually the little word hap. And hap has to do with one's luck, or it has to do with that which is accidental. And so when circumstances happen to be favorable, when a situation happens to be good, then one typically tends to be happy. On the other hand, when circumstances and situations are difficult or hard, one tends to be unhappy. And so what all of these writers fail to understand is that it is not the power of positive thinking, which is what is necessary, or what can counter the negative thinking that we experience. Rather, it is truth thinking, which ultimately trumps all other forms of thinking. Truth thinking. That is what we need to pursue. And the biblical perspective is one that seeks to guide our thinking. The biblical perspective, the biblical worldview, shapes our thoughts. At least it should. That's what God has given us His Word for. Now, very rarely is happiness used to describe the saint's particular state or their state of mind. Happiness is rarely used for that. Instead, what is often spoken of both Old Testament and New Testament, is joy. Happiness, as I mentioned, it is influenced by circumstances. It's affected by your circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is not circumstance-based. This is why Paul, in a Roman dungeon, a Roman prison cell, chained to a Roman guard, can write to the Philippians and talk about his joy and present himself as a joyful servant of God. Because Paul understood that it is not circumstances that determine our joy. The New Testament writers often speak about joy. And Paul repeatedly in Philippians can exhort his fellow Christians to rejoice. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. So positive thinking, it may get you down the road a little ways toward happiness. may get you down the happiness trail a bit, this positive thinking. 
but it can only take you so far. And then it stymies. You get bogged down. The psychological significance of truth, that transcends circumstances. That transcends our situation. Now, as we dive back into the world of the Bible, there were, back in their day, philosophical ideas concerning joy. Uh, people had been thinking about this idea of joy. The term is chara in the original language. And there were philosophers who, who developed this in Hellenistic ways, in Greco-Roman ways. Plato, for example, he saw joy as being equal with hedonism, hedonism being the pursuit of pleasure. Aristotle, he came along and, and he saw hedonism as being greater than joy. And so hedonism, something to be pursued and something that can maybe produce joy. The Stoics, the Stoic philosophers came along and they got the idea that uh, hedonism is actually nothing different. It's a different kind of, or a special kind of joy. But because they were Stoics and you don't indulge in certain pleasurable activity, what they would say is, well, um, yeah, it's a different kind of joy, but you don't gratify those emotions. Do you want your card back, Steve? There you go. All right. That's, that's all right. So, you don't gratify those emotions. You don't gratify those desires because those are ultimately bad. Those are bad things. Those with, that's what the Stoics said. Well, it should be evident that the only thing to change when it comes to happiness, when it comes to most people's idea of joy, the only thing that's changed is the time and the space. Most people still think that what will ultimately bring me joy is that which is ultimately pleasurable. And so, for many people, it is a hedonistic worldview that influences them. That happiness, self-pleasure, that is the greatest good. That needs to be my way of life. And so, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to avoid pain as much as possible and maximize my pleasure. And if I get that quotient figured out, then I will experience joy in this world. The Bible presents us with a vastly different concept when it comes to joy. In the Old Testament, David talks about the joy of your presence. Psalm 21 and verse 6. The joy of God's presence. It's God's presence that ultimately brings joy. Several times, again in the Psalms, God's work of salvation is the chief reason for joy. Because He's my refuge, I will rejoice. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 5, verse 11. You can also see Psalm 9, verse 2, and Psalm 16, and verse 9, for this idea of God's salvation, bringing with it joy. There's singing that is associated with uh, the salvation of God and with joy. That when I am joyful, it'll, it'll manifest outwardly in singing and rejoicing in God's presence. When people are faithful to God's Word, that brings joy. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, we might take a closer look at this particular text. Isaiah 65, beginning in verses 13 and 14. 
Here the Lord God says, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Notice the contrast between the servants of Yahweh versus those who are in rebellion to God. The servants, they'll eat, but those, you, you in rebellion, you will go hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, you shall be thirsty. Notice, behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. What's all this business of eating and drinking and rejoicing connected to? It's connected to obedience to God. That's what the servant of Yahweh will do. Servants of the Lord will pursue God's word and will obey God's word, and it will bring joy with it. Verse 14, behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart. There's your connection between joy and singing, the parallel there at the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. They shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Now, again, keeping God's word, that is cause for rejoicing among the servants of God. But don't miss this. You come down to verse 19. God's still talking here. And he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You notice that God himself rejoices when his people keep his word, when his people are obedient to his voice. Jeremiah is perhaps the most explicit about this in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. He says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. There's, again, the connection between God's word and joy. That's a, there's a direct correlation between the word of God and even keeping and obeying God's word and the joy that he provides his people. When God's people consume his word, it brings with it joy. And so... The joy here, it is inward, but it does have an outward manifestation, that whole singing and, and all that. And this idea, these ideas from the Old Testament are then carried over into the New Testament. Many of these ideas remain the same and even are realized and fulfilled in new and fresh ways as God's plan, God's purpose of redemption is accomplished. In the Gospels, let's start there. We can start in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew talks about joy, but he connects it uh, with the end times. Uh, it has what's called eschatological significance. It, it has to do with the, the, the end of time. It has to do with even rewards to God's faithful. In Matthew chapter 25, you know the parable of the talents. You have one servant who was given five talents, another was given two talents, another was given one talent. And this isn't talents like they can chuck a baseball a quarter mile. This is talents in terms of money. One was given five pieces of money, another two pieces of money, another one piece of money. The man with five talents went, made five more uh, talents, pieces of money. Uh, the man with two talents went out, made two more pieces of money. The one that was only given one piece of money went and buried it. And then when it was time to give an account, Notice the connection here in verse 21. When the man who had made five more pieces of money from the five pieces he had presented his master with the ten pieces, his master said to him, Matthew 25, verse 21, his master said to him, 
well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same thing happens with the man who took two uh, talents, two pieces of money, and made two more. In verse 23, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so we see, again, there's joy at the end of time when we give an, a faithful accounting of what God has entrusted to us. And we give that faithful accounting to Him. There's joy connected with that. Mark, in Mark chapter 4, he tells the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, you may uh, call it that. And in that, there is joy in connection to the reception of the Word. Receiving the Word of God, that produces joy, or it's received with joy. Joy also shows up in John's Gospel. Over in John chapter 16, Jesus has this play going on between sorrow and joy. As He goes back and forth in John 16, uh, we'll start in verse 20. John 16, beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer, no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, Whatever you ask of my Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You see the play that's going on here between sorrow, sorrow and lamentation, because Jesus was going to go and die on the cross. But they would see Him again, resurrection. And with the resurrection and seeing the Lord again, now there would be a reversal. No longer will you be sorrowful. Listen, the world did rejoice when they crucified our Lord. But now they are sorrowful, and their shame is upon them. But for God's people and for His disciples, what sorrow they experienced in light of the resurrection has been changed into joy. It's Luke who uses the term joy the most. Eight times he uses the, the term joy by my count. And it's joy. It actually runs as a theme throughout his gospel. It starts off with the joyful announcement of good news by the angels in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. And then it runs all the way through to the end of the book where after they see their Lord ascend into heaven, they come back into Jerusalem with great joy. Joy seems to bookend Luke's narrative of the gospel accounts. And what it seems to be this overarching theme in the Gospels is that since the King has come near and ushered into this world His kingdom, it is a kingdom which brings with it joy. Joy which is altogether different than what the world has to offer. Joy which, again, is not circumstantial or, or situational. It transcends those things. Because ultimately, it's the joy of the Lord. That is, it is the Lord's joy 
It's His joy, and He gives it to us. Paul is the New Testament writer who talks about, writes about joy more than any other New Testament writer. It's all over his writings, but it's especially prevalent in the book of Philippians. Paul never uses joy in a secular way. He doesn't adopt the usage of the philosophers, and the philosophers and what they thought about joy, very well known. Isn't it Mars Hill where Paul goes into the philosophical uh, the philosophical center of his day, Athens. He goes into to Mars Hill in order to talk about the gospel in the midst of all their philosophers. But he doesn't bring with him any of the secular reasoning, doesn't use joy in any of his epistles in the way that the world does. That's key. Because Paul does not talk about joy in a mundane way. He talks about it in a majestic way. He talks about it in a way that is connected with God. Philippians would be Paul's treatise on joy, because it's a theme that he returns to again and again. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this epistle, Paul is the joyful servant of Christ. He identifies himself as a servant in verse 1, and then in verse 4, he's always praying for the Philippians, making his prayer with joy. Paul is this joyful servant, and all throughout this, Paul, again, he continues to circle back to and think about and bring to the forefront this concept of joy. The entire letter is devoted to this theme. And it's not just that Paul has joy. He understands that there's a reciprocal nature to joy. That the joy that he has is related to the joy that the Philippians have. In fact, when you get down into chapter 2, it is through his fellow servant Timothy that Paul anticipates the Philippians experiencing joy. Chapter 2, verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, Timothy, uh, therefore, excuse me, Epaphroditus, because he was, he was sick and the Philippians had heard about it. They were sorrowful because of it. And so Paul says, I was eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that you may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. And so Paul understands there's a reciprocal nature here that we are to give and receive joy with, uh, with one another. There's a fellowship aspect to this. In fact, for the church in Philippi, Paul talks about them as the very embodiment of his joy in 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, listen, my joy and my crown Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Don't you realize, you Philippians, you're actually the very embodiment of my joy. That's how near and dear these Christians were to Paul. So overall, Paul is exhorting his brethren, the church in Philippi, to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord. 3 verse 1 begins that way. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then, as he com comes around to complete the letter, we read it at the beginning, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now notice, take a closer look there at 4 verse 4, and what I want you to see is that this kind of rejoicing, it, it can be and, and perhaps should be the Christian's disposition at all times. Because you notice he says, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Most of the time, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. That this is a 
a disposition that we can have at all times. Again, demonstrating that this is not circumstance-based. It's not that I'm, when, when things are going well and I'm, I'm, my situation is favorable, then I have joy. But when things are going kind of bad and things are kind of hard and the situation is difficult, then I, I don't have joy. No, whether it's good or bad, whether it's hard or easy, whether the path is difficult or I'm experiencing the favor of God in new and profound ways, we can rejoice in the Lord always at all times. One of the fascinating examples of this is even when Paul is confronted by a situation where Christ is being preached, but the, the preachers are actually preaching out of envy and, and spite of Paul, even in a situation like that, where they were intent on somehow harming Paul if they could, even in that, Paul was experiencing joy. Uh, this is 12 uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And he, he breaks the situation down where there are those who are preaching Christ out of envy of Him and are seeking somehow to do harm if they can to Paul. But even in this, he says, yes, I, I rejoice that Christ is preached, which shows you that even though these guys, these preachers, had bad motives in terms of trying to hurt Paul, they were still getting the gospel right. Because if they were getting the gospel wrong, you would have heard about that. Because Paul says, if you preach the gospel wrong, that doesn't save people right. See Galatians for more on that. And so they were getting the gospel right. It's just their motives were bad. And so Paul was saying, yeah, they may have the bad motives. And they're trying to hurt me somehow. But listen, I still have joy. Yes, I will rejoice. Because Christ is preached. And that was what was key. And also the source of this kind of joy, again... It is, it's not based on circumstances, and yet it is uh, external. It has a supernatural origin even. 1 and verse 25 of Philippians, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so there's a connection between joy and, it's, uh, joy and faith. And it's uh, specifically faith in Christ, not just, you know, being a person of faith or, or what have you. Faith has an object, and that object must always be for the Christian, Christ. It's not that I'm believing in myself enough. It's not even that I have faith in my own faith. Listen, belief in yourself is ultimately blasphemy against Christ. Our faith must be in Christ, not in ourselves. And therefore, this joy is connected to our faith in Christ. This, this world chases after happiness. It, it attempts to measure it and, and develop indexes and, and reports in order to try and, and measure uh, the happiness. But again, it's, it's chasing after the wrong thing altogether because happiness is fleeting. Joy is lasting. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on situations. It comes from God. Remember, Paul is the same one who says that the fruit of the Spirit is joy in addition to love and peace and all the rest, right? And so, again, that shows you the supernatural origin of this joy. It ultimately comes from God, even God, the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with this? Just a, a couple of 
application points, and then the lesson will be yours. I think about joy in relation to the promises of God. God's promises are unchanging. We have a whole book, a whole Bible full of God's promises to us. And that really needs to be what our joy is based on. God's Word does not change. Again, circumstances change, and we know that more than we knew it perhaps before 2020. We are very familiar with the changing of circumstances. God's Word does not change. God's promises never change. And based on those unchanging promises found in the unchanging Word of God, we can experience and know the joy of the Lord. So what does that mean? Does it mean that we walk around kind of just these grinning Cheshire cats all the time, you know, phony baloney, plastic smile, plastered on our face, all the time, how you doing, yeah, whatever. No, I, I do believe there's also something to be said about lament. That, that we, we do grieve. Now, it's not like the rest of the world. It's not like others grieve without hope. But we can and we should grieve with one another. Why Paul can say, yes, we rejoice with those who rejoice, but also mourn with those who mourn. And so it is possible to have joy even in the midst of circumstances where it calls for lament. Jesus, we are told, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And that is our model as well. That Jesus, even God's Son in the flesh, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And I guess there is a, a Trinitarian aspect to this. Because we do believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That our Heavenly Father delights in His children. And based on His delight in us, we can experience and know joy in God the Father. God the Son came to this world, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that was due us on the cross, was raised from the dead, and all of that because of His completed work on our behalf. We can experience the joy that God the Son has brought to us through the gospel. And then, of course, we can rejoice in God the Holy Spirit and allow Him to cultivate and develop within us, the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all conspiring together in order to bring us joy. In the weeks ahead, we will continue to develop this. We're going to walk through uh, the book of Philippians and explore the different facets and the different ways in which Paul is talking about joy and the joy that Christians can have. It's connection to the gospel. It's connection to Christian living. And we'll explore this more in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we, we rejoice in your joy. And we desire to see even more people be obedient to your word and your will because we know that that gives you joy. We desire ourselves to be people who devote ourselves to your word, 
who seek to obey you in all things, knowing that you delight in that and, and, and you are joyful over that. We pray that you would continue to develop within us in these uncertain times the joy, your joy even. Give us your joy in the Holy Spirit. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.